Welcome to My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 395. So we're coming straight from the days of Purim, the great joy of Purim, but not just a regular joy, a joy that transforms darkness into light, which is the essence of Purim that we've been celebrating close to 25 centuries. And its lessons and message cannot be more relevant today due to the events in the world, especially in Ukraine, where innocent people are being killed and terrified and creating a tremendous humanitarian refugee crisis and all that comes with it. So our hope was and our prayers were that Putin would be the end and cessation of all violence and all war, exactly as it happened in the days of Putin. That has not happened yet, but we are still waiting. God's miracles can happen every given moment. But the lessons continue to remain strong, especially the lesson of defiance, where Mordechai, even though it would have been easy for him thus to bow and to, and to subjugate himself, <coughs> subjugate himself to Haman, and that would have seemingly been a conformist act, and it would have not incited Haman. Instead, he stood up, and that actually was the cause of ultimately leading to the redemption. Because even though short-term it may have been a little uncomfortable, but the long-term is that when you stand strong for your values and what you believe in, that is ultimately always going to prevail. And the same is our lessons today. We discussed this last week more at length. We'll do some follow-up on that, but as well as the new timely uh, discussions around this week being Parsha Shmini and Parsha's Pada. So let's combine it all together and um, hopefully come away with tremendous lessons from Taylor in general, particularly in all these um, regarding our lives today, in our personal, psychological, emotional, and now also global events in our lives. This program is dedicated in merit of Baruch Binyamin Ben Menuchelena and Miriam Baschaya Sar Altes, Yukusil Ben Leir Rochel and Rochel Basliba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Tadris Ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rochel Altes. So let me begin with a uh, nice personal comment. I've, again, thank you all for your wonderful blessings and good wishes on all levels. Uh, and and it only gives me strength to become back stronger and greater and more powerful than ever. So here's one note I th- felt comfortable reading. Very heartwarming. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. It's so good to have you back making online classes. I'm not a person that goes to shul or in-person classes very often, so your online classes are perfect for me because I can watch them at home on my own schedule and pace. May Hashem bless you with the refuah shlema. May you be stronger than you were before. From the bottom of my heart, I sincerely appreciate everything you give to the community with your online programs. Thank you. Thank you. And kolam evarach mizbarach. I extend my blessings to each one of you long, healthy years, and we may be all together march into the Gula, Mitis Vashlema, even before Misma Gula Gula, Gula Gula, the Gula Purim to the Gula of Pesach, which is the period in which we are in now. So it's a particularly auspicious time for redemption, personal and global redemption, both in Europe and Ukraine, but also in the entire world. Because after all, Ad Mosai, as the Rebbe said so, so emphatically and so often, how long can we more? How, how much longer? How much more has to happen for us to finally finish and 
and tip the scale and bring them redemption. So the days between Purim and Pesach are perfectly t- perfect time for that. As the Gemara says, Mismagula regarding a leap year like this year, to dis- establish why is Purim, Purim usually would be celebrated in the first order. It's the second order that's the addition that comes a leap year. Purim is every year. But because Mismagula Gula, because the, the Torah wanted us to connect, one Gula should follow right another. So even though you could say it's just a technical thing, one month following another, but you see time matters. When something is close in time, it's also close in proximity and in quality. That one ge'ula is like a catalyst that leads and a springboard that leads into the next ge'ula. Misma ge'ula le ge'ula. So that's lesson number one, that we are in a time of redemption. And especially taking into consideration the Rebbe's words 30 years ago, and uh, 31 years ago, and 32 years ago, that this is now, we're literally coming to the point of crossing the threshold. Higiyaz mangulaschem, so, I mean, it is about time. But what we have to continue doing is not just to say when is it going to happen, but ask ourselves, what are we doing about it? Which is essentially, as Mashiach told the Baal Shem Tov, when are you going to come? When the wellsprings, when the wellsprings of Chassidus, your wellsprings of Chassidus will be disseminated, distributed, spread all, everywhere, outward, chutzah to the farthest outskirts of this universe, both quantity and quality, which hopefully this program, My Life Chassidus Applied, is about that. And each of us in our own way, <clears throat> in addition, of course, to all the other aspects of what brings closer Gula, including Tztaka, Avis Yisrael, and there's so many other things that the Rebbe emphasized time and again of what ultimately brings the Gula. Mentioning Avis Yisrael, I mentioned last week from the Sikhs of the Rebbe in 1983, Tav Shemem Dalad, time, that when nations are warring with each other and conflict with each other, the Rebbe suggested the, saying the two prayers, adding the two prayers, I should say, for those that didn't say it before, Hareni Makabal, Alai Mitzvah that I accept upon myself in the morning prayer, before we start the morning prayers, I accept in myself the love of another. And at the end of the prayer, Ach Tzadikim, Yeshvi Yisharim, Ach Tzadikim, Yeshvi Yisharim, And the Yeshvi Yisharim is referring to Yashvus and Menucha, a peaceful life and a peaceful world and a peaceful home and a peaceful community. So it's worthwhile emphasizing again. And the obvious connection is that when we are united among each other, that that unity creates a ripple effect that impacts the entire universe, the entire world. Okay, so let's go first to the timely fact that this week we read Pasha Shmini and Pasha's Pora. Pasha Shmini is in the regular order of the chapters. Being it's a leap year, things are later than usual. So it's the third chapter in the book of Leviticus, in the third book, Ikritzav Shmini, the third chapter. But there's an addition, Pasha, an additional trailer that we take out, which is called one of the four Pashas that we read from the beginning of Adar, through the blessing of the moon, of the, of the month of Nisan, we read four parshas, and then we read, we read Shkolim, then Zohar, Pora, and Hachidosh. So now we are in the third of those four, and they're in particular that order. So let's talk about these lessons that we can derive from both Shmini and Pora. Now Shmini has many, many themes in it. But as always, let's start with the central theme that is indicated and hinted to in the name Vahibayema Shmini, 
This is referring to after the consecration, after the dedication of the temple for seven days, where the, where the kohanim, the priests, were trained how to serve in the temple. So it was Chinuch Hanukkah Samizbeach Hanukkah Samishkan. Then comes by He by Yemashmini, and now on the eighth day, what happens on the eighth day? This is the day where the actual beginning of the first time that the Shekhinah resides in the Besam, in the Mishkan, and the real service, the formal service, not just the education, not just the Chinuch, but the actual service begins. So, of course, the question is why is it by Yemashmini? Technically, it's the eighth day. So the Kleyokar commentary and cited in Chsidis says the eight is not just another number. Eight is called Shemir Asahekov in the words of the Rajba. Seven reflects on the structure of existence. And number eight reflects on a transcendent energy that so-called protects and hovers over the very structure. So Shmini, you'll find in many places, the number eight refers to a level of the divine that is higher than the structure of existence, higher than the divine within existence. In order to be able to have Tisha Shechina V'maysi that you should have the Shechina in the actual temple, you cannot just have the divine presence that exists in existence. That is a limited presence. In the Mishkan was a particular transcendent one, Shachanti B'Seichem, that comes from level 8. And the lesson to us in Aveda is that we too have two types of Aveda, two types of service. The things we do that are structured and organized, like in the seventh structure of the seven days of the week, things that we do that are based on our routine, based on our, our uh, habits, based on our abilities. But then there's an element where we go outside of our comfort zone. Like he says in Tanya chapter 15, you go outside of our regulus. And that's called serving God. Because if you do it as a routine, it's still serving, but it's still within the structure. Whereas you go, not just not just loving with your, all, all your heart and all your soul, but you go a step further, something that pushes you. If it, it, they say, till it hurts. Here it doesn't mean hurt in any negative way. It means beyond your regular norm. That in turn induces and draws down also a transcendent energy. So we too have seven and eight in our own work. So coming from Purim and going to Pesach, of course, of course it makes total sense because both Purim and Pesach represent. Pesach is eight days actually outside of Eretz Yisrael, but Purim as well as Adela Yada, we go to a level that is beyond the rational structure. And in general, Geula means going beyond the regular, the regular structure and, in, and drawing down something beyond. So yes, in a time like this, and especially when there's a crisis in the world, we have to go further than our regular routines to add an additional amount of charity, additional amount of prayer, additional amount of studying Torah. And everything that we push a little further, even though it's meaning it's only relevant, relative to you that you're going beyond your regular, but that in turn brings the the true transcendent energy that's completely beyond. That's lesson from Shemini. <clears throat> as far as Pada goes, so why indeed do we read the chapter of Pada this, in this order? So Shkolim we read because that was when they began to collect the Shkolim, was the half shekels that they were collected annually in the month, beginning of the month of Adar for the, for the offerings in the temple. Today we do it through the Minig of Shekel and Erev Tainus Esther, but it's in general the idea of the Shkolim that we contribute, Kesav Zavonachesh, is our contribution to the building of the temple. Zohar is read next, the Shabbos before Purim, because Zohar remembering Amalek, Haman comes from Amalek, 
So before we actually obliterate Amalek and eliminate Amalek in the war against him, we remember and we review the story itself telling us to obliterate the entire memory of this terrible force called Amalek, which represents doubt, um, apathy, indifference, and all the forces that are like a cancer that can affect us all. The next comes Pasha Parah, because before you bring the carbon chaydish, Hachedish, the last four chapters, the last of the four chapters will be about the Korban Pesach, where God tells Moshe that the Jews are ready to go out of Egypt and they should prepare by bringing a Paschal lamb. So before you bring a Paschal lamb, you need tar, you need purity. Porah Aduma is the purity that purifies even from the most extreme of all impurities, which is the impurity of death. So that's why we read Porah. Now, when we read it today, even though we don't have the actual Korban Pesach yet, Shiach comes, we will. So that's why we have to always be ready. And we don't actually bring a physical paraduma, a red heifer. But symbolically, we have the concept. The concept of number one is that tara mevil degdusha, that first you need to be clear, clean, pure, healthy, is the good way to interpret it. Before you get to be holy, you need to be healthy. A person who's holy but he's not healthy behaves in an abusive manner or is in other unhealthy, dysfunctional ways the Gedusha can be deeply compromised. So before we get to a state of Achidosh, which is renewal, and Achidosh in a form of Pesach, which is also transcendence, Pesach, which is, comes from the word leaping over, transcendent, like number eight, before that we need to purify ourselves. We need to clean up our act in personal terms. It's like before you go into a mikveh, you have to go in in a pure way. A table, B'sheres B'yadeh, someone immerses themselves in the mikveh and holding on to a corpse is a contradiction of terms. So before you go to higher levels of purity, we first have to purify ourselves on a very basic level. And that comes down to looking and introspectively looking at our hearts and souls of how we treat other people, how we treat our family, how in general our behavior is, on a very basic level. So Pura this week all indicates that element of the lesson for us in what the idea of really purifying oneself. And that will lead us to the next week after that, that we can enter into a real state of renewal. Think of it this way. Let's say you buy a new house, or you're moving into a new house. Before you bring in clean furniture, you want to clean up the house. If there's dust, you don't want to bring in furniture before they clean it up. Before there's bringing in the beautiful new furniture, the beautiful new upholstery or whatever it may be, you want to clean up the house, get rid of all the dust. So before Chodesh comes the Tarad of Parah Duma. In addition, Chassidus talks at length in the Maimorim of Alter Rebbe Lukutatera, Pasha Chukas, which is the Pasha from where we read Pasha Parah, talks about the idea of the red heifer being, even though it's a chukah, which means a super rational mitzvah, but it consists of taking two things, the, the eifer, the, the dust that remains uh, from after, after sacrificing a red heifer, so whatever the ash that remains, <clears throat> and mixing it with mayim chayim, with fresh live water coming from a live brook, a live spring of water. So Chassidus explains what's the significance of that. If it's a chukah, it's a chukah. What difference does it make? Water, ash, and so on. The answer is rotzei v'shuv. Fire and water represent the two key elements, the two poles that give energy to everything in existence. Fire and water. 
chesed and gvura. Like rotze and shuv. Yearning and returning. Tension and resolution. So the tension of fire which rises is resolved by the water that falls. So bringing them two together, this is what creates res- resurrection, essentially. This is what creates a new life. And that's why it has the power to purify from death. Because death, essentially, if you think of the soul of death, is what? The soul of death is essentially, when I say soul of death, I mean to say the anatomy, the inner component, the essence of death, is when there's no vitality. When you don't have that connection of the two energies, that a heartbeat, for instance, requires contraction, expansion, the breath, exhale and inhale, rotze and shuv, tension and resolution. In Avedus Hashem, it means that everything in our lives we need to always be aspiring to, getting out of our comfort zone, going upward. But then we have to also internalize and integrate it into our lives. So it's bringing number eight, Shmini, into the seven of the structure of our lives. Okay. A follow-up question to last week's Parashat Tzav, why were we commanded to always keep the flames burning on the Mizbeach, the altar, even at times when we weren't using it? Wouldn't this be a baltashchiz by wasting fuel? Isn't that like waste? It's one thing you need the fire when you bring an a, a, a offering on the altar so the fire is necessary to consume and burn the offering. But why, we keep, why is it burning esh tukadal mizbeach, esh tomit tukadal mizbeach, that is constantly has to burn? What is the lesson this is trying to teach us? Now, if you think about it, remember, all these things that are happening in the temple are not just events back then. They're happening right now. Just not in the physical sense, but in Aved and Ruchnis, that we too have an altar, and we bring our animal soul, we we offer our animal soul the pleasure and the fat and the indulgence. We offer it kirov from the word carbon, to bring it closer to the divine. To do that, you need a fire. The fire burns out all the negative effects of the desires and temptations of life. And the key thing to remember is that this fire is an eternal flame, just like by the Ner Tamid, the eternal flame of the Menera. What's the point? Because you want to know that the soul's fire, Ner Hashem Yishma Sodom, is always burning. This isn't just a timely event or a timely activity. This is 24-7 that the fire burns. The fire never gets extinguished. It's a tremendous lesson in hope and resilience to know that the fire is always burning. There's always a pilot flame. Even though I'm Shena, I may be asleep, right? Of a libi air, but my heart is awake. So no matter what you see in a person, and sometimes you may think a person is in a state of a comatose state spiritually, or you may feel you are in a state like that, the flame is always there whether you know it or not. So the Teda tells us, remember, keep this flame always burning. Make sure you know it's burning and keep it burning. And the same is true with us because this is our key to all of our hope. That we know no matter what happens, the flame continues to burn no matter what. Okay. With that, let's do some follow-up. A lot of different questions keep coming in and have come in, both about Purim and Ukraine. So I'm going to break it into two parts, try to cover, first we'll cover some follow-up on Purim and then some follow-up on Purim and Ukraine, combination of both, and then more on the topic of Ukraine the topic of Purim, and then the topic of the, of the war in Ukraine. Okay. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, once at a Fabring, the Rebbe said, when people see a world leader, 
they say, hurrah, hurrah. And the Rebbe explained that referring to Stalin, hurrah meant he is evil, hurrah, he is evil, and told everyone to say hurrah three times. At that exact moment, Stalin had a massive heart attack and dropped dead. Can we try a similar strategy by all saying hurrah three times together to stop Russia, Putin, from destroying the world? Okay, so this happened in Tavshin Yud Gimel, Purim Tavshin Yud Gimel, 1953. At the end of the Fabrengen, the Rebbe became very serious, and we saw that the Rebbe, those that were there, I wasn't there, but those that were there saw that the Rebbe was preparing to say a second Maimer Chesidus, which was unprecedented. He already said a discourse in Chesidus, but then the Rebbe told the story that in the time of the Tsar, there was a, uh, the, the, the Rebbe Rashab had said, that everyone should go out and vote. And so, and when the Tsar finally came to victory, so there was one Chassid who was following orders. He didn't know anything better. He saw everyone's doing that, and he saw them saying, hurrah, 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 meaning the Tsar, the, 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 the leader is victorious. Say, right, hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. And the Rebbe encouraged everybody in the crowd to do exactly that. Later, it was discovered that that was when Stalin suffered a debilitating heart attack or stroke and ultimately died. So, of course, the question is very applicable today, even though we're not on Purim any longer. But what is the significance of this? That a Jew has power. Our prayers have power. Stalin was, of course, a Tzedek Yisrael of the worst type, meaning an enemy of the Jewish people. He, was ready, he had already killed many, many, and was ready to create another, the, the doctor's uh, plot, killing many more. So his death actually changed the whole climate in Russia, not completely at the time, the Soviet Union, but compared to what Stalin was like, absolutely. Now, I have to say as a disclaimer, President Putin has been kind to Jews. And I'm not saying that to defend what he's doing right now, not at all. But it's a little different. But nevertheless, regarding this act, why not? If we can invoke heaven, and, and say something, and through our prayers, and through our heartfelt beseeching the heavens themselves, perhaps it could help. When the Rebbe said we should say Harenim Mekabel, and Ach Tzadikim, it was meant that our prayers do have impact. It wasn't just saying lip service, God forbid. So my answer is absolutely. I'm not going to say anything definite. I'm not a Rebbe. But we can definitely learn lessons from it, at least... In, in, in some way that we have power to affect events even in that part of the world as we did back in 1953. A few others that followed up. Can we put a curse on, uh, on, on Mr. Putin? Can we put a pulsa denuda curse on Vladimir Putin? Pulsa denuda means, means uh, f- flashes of fire. It's an expression for excommunication, like a curse to stop him from destroying the beautiful world Hashem created? Can we use magical incantations to compel Shindalids to come out of the forest and attack Russian troops in order to protect our communities in Ukraine? Look, I'm not an expert in this area of curses and pulsa denudas. We are taught that the Teda way is through Teda Tfilev Gmilz Chasodim, Tshuva Tfilev Charity, Tshuva, and all these things, that's how you mevat l'gzera, you abolish a decree. Um, so I'm not going to comment on this because it's simply, I don't believe we have anyone here that has that capacity to do that. If someone feels they can do it, why not try? Um, but rather go with the approaches we've been taught of how you deal with situations. In addition, of course, 
every physical way we can help the people there, financially, physically, morally, and so on. But of course, anything we do, and our prayers go out to all innocent people, especially the Jews that are such under attack as well in that part of the world. So hopefully through our efforts, we'll finally see a cessation of this and a total transformation as it was in the days of Purim. Okay. Can we learn from Haman that humiliation is the beginning of his downfall? Is there a message that says when Haman was leading Mordechai through the streets on a horse, that Haman's family or daughter emptied a chamber pot with um, excretion on Haman's head? And during this moment of public humiliation, Haman knew it was the beginning of his downfall. If in today's time we see an evil person who is an enemy of mankind get humiliated humiliated in public, can we assume it's the beginning of their downfall? Okay, an interesting correlation. Uh, Why not? Remember, a war is not just a physical war, it's also a psychological war. When your enemy gets humiliated, it's true, it could also incite them to become more aggressive, but could also weaken their resolve. So I would say it's a possibility. Another person writes, if we wear sackcloth and pour ashes on our heads like Mordechai did, will that inspire Hashem to annul the decree and end the war in Ukraine and bring peace? Again, all these questions, they're all good questions, but remember, not everything has to be literal. The idea of wearing sackcloth and pour ashes doesn't mean necessarily physically to do that. Remember, that was exeda of anoshim noshim etav of every man, woman, and child of the Jewish people. So Mordechai did whatever he could do. The idea that we should pray for innocent people, absolutely, that we shouldn't just sleep peacefully but care, absolutely. So if that's the way to inspire Hashem to know the decree and bring peace, absolutely. So instead of, instead of applying it literally, rather apply it figuratively in any way that we can apply it to our personal lives. Okay. What's the connection to the king sleeping in the Megillah, which says, That night, the king had insomnia. He was un- unable to sleep. And what connection does that have to Hashem, the way the name Elikim, as God is hiding his revelations of godliness within nature? Also, when someone is sleeping, we can usually wake them up with loud noise. Can we wake up Hashem to end Golis with a loud noise of group prayer? And the answer is yes. Even though Kavyochel, we cannot speak about God sleeping. God, the protector of Israel, does never slumbers or never sleeps. And yet we do find the concept of Aniyashena Begolusa, that there's a certain element of the godliness, revealed godliness, is in a state of a somewhat of a comatose or sleepy sleep type state. So that's why Chassidus brings even though it's referring to Achashverosh, but in the root of Achashverosh from the word could also refer to the divine. That after a certain moment of sleep, when, when things are asleep, we are not always conscious of what's going on. Now you can't say in God that he's not conscious, but nevertheless in Golas, you could say there's somewhat of a concealment of God's consciousness, from us at least. And when it says that that night, he woke up, he could not sleep. It's a certain way of waking up, yes, that we too can invoke through our prayers, through our Aveda, and wake up God that, to wake up from the 
dream of Golis, from the sleep of Golis, and bring the Geula, which is compared to being awake. So in that sense, absolutely. And again, it comes through our group prayer, or our individual prayer, or our other Torah mitzvahs that we do. Okay. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, another question, Purim-related. Happy Purim. We are taught that everything Hashem commands us to do, He also does. It says on Purim, Kol that anyone that extends, that opens their arm, their hand, give him charity. So therefore Hashem also gives us if we put out our hand, if we stretch out our hand. Absolutely. How can we take advantage of this Esrotzen, of this auspicious time, and make a keli to receive God's blessings on Purim? Well, being we're ready after Purim, we could say it continues. And what is that? The keli is very straightforward, just like it is with the, the literal sense. Stretching out your hand means stretching out your hand, asking. When you ask, especially heartfelt, sincere, that's the best keli of all. So that's exactly what we've been talking about through our prayers, through our teda, through our avodah, through gemilz chasadim, our kind and good acts of goodness and kindness. When we do it with sincerity, we could ask for anything we wish. That's the whole concept of prayer. But Purim, the channels are even more open precisely because of this kol yad Okay. And finally, this question on Purim, and then we'll move to uh, other topics, Ukraine. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, Baruch Hashem, I had a wonderful Purim. But I feel very guilty that I did not drink any alcohol. Not even one l'chaim. I was just so busy. I didn't have any time to drink any alcohol. I read the Megillah seven times over Purim, giving a couple hundred people the opportunity to do a mitzvah. It was great, but very exhausting. I davened all three tefillahs with a minion. I spent time in the afternoon driving my kids around town so they can deliver Mishleach Monas, the gifts of food, to their friends and enjoy the simcha, the joy of Purim. I made sure to give Matanus Lavyenim, the gifts to poor, poor people. I even went to Yeshiva's Mordechai Tzadik with my son, and he actually won the raffle. Okay. We attended a kid-oriented Purim party for the Suda, for the meal, and there was no alcohol served. By the end of the day, I was exhausted and fell asleep. I feel terrible that I did not have a chance to drink alcohol, as this is one of the most important parts of Purim, especially for a chassid. I feel that despite busying myself with mitzvahs and being a good dad and spending time with my kids on Purim, I've chosen the toffel over the iker. The toffel means the secondary over the primary. Now, unfortunately, it is too late. Purim is over, and I won't have another chance until next year. Is there any way that I can rectify this most grievous sin? Thank you and all the best. Okay, <laughs> sounds to me like a Purim Teda. Purim Teda means a little tongue-in-cheek type of letter, most grievous sin. So first of all, don't feel uh, so uh, down. The mitzvahs you all did are unbelievable, especially with your children. And there's no doubt in my mind that you kept a very powerful Purim. In general, drinking, even though it does say a person should drink to the point that they can't know the difference between blessed is Mordechai and cursed is Haman, it's true, there is that mitzvah. But you can see by the Rebbe's Fabrengans that the Rebbe did not tell everybody to fulfill that mitzvah. He would say usually have one person will be yates everybody else. 
Because today there are also all kinds of different challenges when it comes to drinking and so on. So had you said a l'chaim, I would have told you to take, say, one l'chaim, two l'chaim, and that would be fine. You didn't do it, you didn't do it. I would not uh, be so... Uh, even though, again, I think this is a tongue-in-cheek letter, but nevertheless, I wanted to just emphasize, even if this was a serious letter, that it's not a grievous sin. Now, if you really think you did a terrible sin, so Shabbos after Purim, or now Shabbos has passed already, you can find another opportunity, it's called my mashlim, and say a l'chaim, for the Purim, the l'chaim that you should have said on Purim if you want to do so. But always be careful, as the Rebbe made a decree that not to drink more than four cups, the question people have, what about Purim? So it's not so simple, because Purim, because of the mitzvah of Purim, the Rebbe, of course, would not go against the mitzvah and the Purim, but still, you have to know how to drink, and drinking for the right reasons, many people drink just to drink, that's definitely not the kavanah intention. But regardless, I actually commend you. It's good. I'm very happy to hear how busy you are, especially with all these good activities and all these mitzvahs and taking care of your children. I think that, mitzvah, that, that the mitzvahs of Purim you were fulfilled, and God will already fulfill the mitzvah of the Chayev Inish for you through the other mitzvahs that you did accomplish. But most importantly, this is not something you have to go do tshuva for or wait till next year. You know, chill out about it and move on. We have plenty of good things to do now as we prepare now from Purim going into Pesach. Okay. So here's a bunch of follow-up about Ukraine. Let's do that. What was the peace offering they brought in the Holy Temple? And what could we bring today as a substitute in order to bring peace in Ukraine? So in uh, Pasha Yikro, which we read two weeks ago, there's a korban called Zevach Shlomim. It's called a peace offering. And Rashi explains from Medrash what that means. It was in order to Shlomim from the word Shalom, in order to bring peace in the world. It was not a korban brought due to a, a sin or forgiveness, like chatos. It was a korban someone who did not necessarily sin, but a type of a type of a type of a korban teida, which means a teida means a thank you, means a korban. Uh, I shouldn't have said teida. It's not a chiyuv that you have to bring it. This is a korban that you want to bring, like a korban teida, a, a uh, offering of gratitude. But here the intention is shlomim that should create peace in the world. Now, since tefillas connected kabbonis tiknum, prayer today we don't have the actual offerings. You have to say in our prayers, we also have something similar. And indeed, when you read the prayers, you'll find quite a few prayers emphasize the idea of bringing shalom ba'elam. There should be peace in this world. So you can say that corresponds to the carbon zevach shlamim, the peace offering. And this goes back to the theme we've been talking about time and again here, that we, even those that can't fight a physical war, and that's not their role to fight, have to fight the spiritual war, war which includes tefillah, which is a form of war, tefillah itself. Shas tefillah, shas kirva. So, so tefillah is a form of a war. That it's a form of battle, but it's a spiritual battle to pierce all the heavens. And we do that through our prayers, and including prayers for peace in the world, especially in that region, which needs peace now more than ever. Okay. This is a follow-up to last week. When I was 13 years old, the Rebbe said, that to offset turmoil and unrest in the world. Before davening, we should say Hareini Mekabal. This is what I referred to before from Beyutas Kislev, 19, Tavshim Emdal, 1983. To say, Hareini Mekabal, Alay Mitzvah Seser, Shalva Haftarecha Kamaycha. 
I accept on myself the positive mitzvah of loving another. And after davening, and at the end of davening, to say, Ach tzadikim. I've been doing this, but it hasn't worked to offset the turmoil of the war in Ukraine or the rising inflation in New York. Is it possible I'm doing it incorrectly? What if I say it three times before and after davening instead of just one time? Will that end the suffering of the Ukrainian people? And will Hashem send me extra money so I can afford $4 a gallon of gas? This is a general question you can ask about all tefillahs. We pray to God for Refer Chelem for healing. We pray for Bichas Hashanim, for Parnosa and um, livelihood. We pray for many different things. And sometimes it seems like the prayer was not fulfilled. And the answer, as I discussed a number of times, as the Shalosh says, every prayer is listened to and is fulfilled. But sometimes you need to open up many doors. So every prayer opens one door, but there are more doors to open. So to say that your prayers are not having an effect, they absolutely have an effect. Do you always see the effect immediately? Not necessarily, but you never know. You never know what your prayer is accomplishing. And that's what we always have to keep in mind. You know, it's not always black and white. We tit for tat, you'd say a prayer and automatically this is what happens. We've been praying for Gaula for years and years. And not just we, simple people, the Rebbe, Rabbeim. And yet the Gula didn't come yet. That doesn't mean the prayers were for naught, God forbid. It means that the prayers pierced certain levels, opened up doors, but it's still not accomplished. The final goal, which is opening the final door where you have the entire fulfillment of that prayer. So keep on praying. You want to say it three times, by all means. The Rebbe didn't mention three times. But if you feel that's something you want to say, go ahead. <clears throat> to mention as well, Ach Tzadikim, when the Rebbe spoke about it, he said it also, remember we say that after the Pesukim, Otsu of Esufa, the other Pesukim, that actually Mordechai, when he gathered 22,000 children, those are the verses that they said to annul the decree. So it all comes down to the same idea of annulling the decrees. From the mouths of babes and sucklings, we, the Yasadatees will be established strength, to eliminate the enemy and the, adver, and, the, and the adversary. Okay. If we start printing Tanyas all over Ukraine, will that help the situation and bring peace? The Rebbe established printing tanyas also in the early 80s and 84. And there's no doubt that I know many tanyas were printed in Ukraine, many of those chassidish cities there. Of course, anything you do in Kedusha and holiness has, adds power and strength. I cannot say it's a directive directly connected to this war, but if it's possible and if it's also safe, I don't know if it's number one priority due to the fact that there's a real crisis going on, but in concept, yes, Should we be building new institutions instead of helping those in need? Well, this question can be asked anytime, especially, of course, now in a time of war. And the fact of the matter is, according to the data, we can do both. We build institutions while we also help people in need. It's not a contradiction. If you have money and you can't give it both places because it's just that you only... So you have to make a priority. Obviously, Pekuach Nefesh, saving lives, always comes first. But I don't think it's, a, it's a two different realities and two different worlds. I don't think we have to compete one or the other. 
people have to make their choices. And, and um, of course, when you hear such a crisis, you do what you have to do to help in that situation. But it's not a contradiction to building institutions. Even right now, in Ukraine, there are these holy institutions, Chabad houses, shuls, that were, that were literally an oasis for people coming Purim, giving them strength, giving them shelter, giving them hope, giving them faith, strengthening their faith. So we can't un- un- underestimate the power of that as well. Are we partly to blame for the humanitarian disaster in Ukraine because many people propped up and supported Putin in exchange for favors and permissions? I'm not here to judge anyone. I don't know what went on behind the scenes. Putin has definitely helped many Jewish institutions in Russia, and that's a blessing. Of course, they should have t- they took advantage of it, and they, they tried to benefit as most as possible. Anyone going to Russia sees the Renaissance. Now the situation, yes, is quite difficult, but I cannot take away from the fact that people took that money, or, I mean, to say that that encouraged Mr. Putin to attack Ukraine, how would we say that? Mr. Putin did good things for those people, and hopefully will continue to do so. At the same time, we do not in any way condone and cover up or allow that to blind us from what Mr. Putin is doing in Ukraine. And I think you just have to separate the two. So no, I would not blame ourselves for this disaster. This is the choices of him and whoever is, is part of his uh, team. Yeah. Did the Rebbe ever say that the name of the country Russia means evil in Hebrew? Did I read that last week? I believe I did. Russia from the word like Russia, wicked. I never heard the Rebbe say it. Does it have an element? Russia has been many ways sometimes very difficult for the Jewish people but I've never heard that exact expression if someone has more information please let me know and I'll share it in the next program okay should we be embarrassed and ashamed that our community began in Lubavitch which is a town in Russia which is now turning out to be a barbaric country of murderous fiends God forbid why should we be embarrassed and ashamed I mean you can say the same thing listen Many Jews grew up and were born in Egypt, which, which was the cause of the Egyptian exile and slavery and so on. On the contrary, the Jewish people living in Russia, we should be proud that the Hasidic movement and the many, many Jews that built, that grew up and were educated and, and built their institutions and built their movements. The Alter Rebbe built Chabad Hasidus, before that the Balshamtev and the Magid, cities in Russia, in Ukraine and so on. Why would we be ashamed of that? The fact that we are living in the host countries during Golas. That's the way God made it. God did a charity that he spread us out among the nations. That's not our choice. That's where we are. So we, we, we have to be proud of everything we've done in all these nations, even those that, that oppressed us. We built, we built Torah, we built mitzvahs, we built chassidahs, we built faith and strength. So I don't see any connection to being embarrassed. On the contrary. I would say even furthermore that anything good that will ultimately come out of this and ultimately the peace and the end is perhaps due to the mysterious nefesh and the sacrifices and all the, the dedication and commitment for, th- for how, who knows how long, over a thousand years of Jews living in that part of the world is helping refine that part of the world and will ultimately prevail. 
This is basic Jewish teachings, that wherever we go in this world, we are there to refine, to elevate. And when we do that, we refine that part of the world and prepares it for the Geula, and ultimately also preparing it for more refinement and taming the elements of these host nations, as we see that through the, through the centuries, the trajectory has been that the nations have become more tame. They've become more docile, more civil, and embrace some of the principles of Sheva Mitzvah B'nei Neach that create a civilization in this world. God's given laws, universal Noahide laws. Okay. There's some very disturbing footage of Russian generals being allowed to come into the caver, into Lubavitch, into the resting place of the Rebbe Marash to pray. It's both the Rebbe Marash and Semach Tzedek. Why would anyone let these warmongering animals into a mokum, into a holy place? Do they think our Rebbeim have nothing better to do than to intercede in heaven on their behalf? What a disgrace. We should not let war criminals into our holy places. Honestly, I saw that as well before the war began. I am not in a position to comment on it. I don't know the circumstances, what brought them there, whether it was that they themselves insisted on going, whether it was Chabad rabbis or others that encouraged them to go. And remember, the intention could have been maybe to go there and get a message that not to go to war. That could have also been the intention. Unfortunately, it's been used the opposite way. So you have to know more of the details and the circumstances um, of the, the before commenting on that. Has the Rebbe ever made any public statements or given advice on how to survive a nuclear war? My, my, according to my recollection, the answer is no. And there's a reason why. The Rebbe never looked at the world in an apocalyptic way, in a negative way that there'll be, God forbid, nuclear war. The Rebbe did speak about a jungle, did speak that we have today the power of a person to press a button that can destroy so much, but he never spoke about it in a way of fear or concern that we have to do something to prepare for it. But remember the Rebbe being a God-fearing man, to put it mildly, is a person who looked at the world as God's world. And yes, there was a lot of cruelty. The Rebbe grew up, remember, in, was born in Tsarist Russia, went through the beginnings of the Bolsheviks and the, and the, communist, uh, the communist rise to power. He saw the Nazis firsthand. So the Rebbe was quite aware of the evil in this world, and yet never did he speak in those terms that we have to prepare in an apocalyptic way. The Rebbe always looked the other way around, that we have to bring more light and more kedusha, more holiness and more godliness, because even a little light dispels the greatest darkness. That was the Rebbe's general approach to these things. At the same time, of course we have to be prudent. You lock your door. You have different ways to protect yourself. But that should not be the driving force in your life. That should be a secondary element of being careful, being safe. But the most important thing is to always have the positive attitude that we will bring the Geula. Absolutely. And finally, dear Rabbi Jacobson, where I live in the UK, I don't know if it's going on elsewhere, there's a considerable concern over the rising cost of living. Petrol prices, heating your home, food prices, everything is becoming more and more expensive. People will have to start choosing between heating their homes and putting food on the table. God forbid. I was having a discussion with friends and we tried to think what positive spin could be put on this. We decided it would be best to ask you as we had no answers. Thank you for everything you do. Your shiurim and broadcasts are indispensable. Well, I thank you for your vote of confidence. Um, so first of all, I don't want to put it a positive spin. The Gemara does say that Mashiach will come when everybody's wallets will be emptied, 
meaning a, a level of poverty, even though it's very clear that we don't live in a time like that. On the contrary, the prosperity of our times is unprecedented. So even when the price is going up, to compare it to the poverty of our grandparents and great-grandparents, please. Now, is it going to affect us? Yes, it could affect us, rising prices. And we'll have to adjust, and we'll have to deal with it. But I am not one that's concerned about it. I don't want to say a positive element. Listen, it's a result of war. It's a result of um, sanctions. It's a result of resources being now need to be replaced and so on and shortages that will happen inevitably but at the end of the day you do what's right in this world you trust in God you work hard and Hashem will provide that's our attitude and again let's not forget comparatively speaking yes we will not be able to have a steak every night or, or go to the highest expensive restaurants that is our price that we pay think about our parents and grandparents people who died of hunger literally died of hunger. So not to minimize any pain that anyone's experiencing now. Pain is pain. But we also have to put things into context and perspective. Okay. So now let me go completely different topic altogether. Someone wrote this actually before this whole uh, crisis in Ukraine. I thought it was worthwhile reading and addressing. So it's a different topic. How can I make sense of a good deed that I did, which 30 years ago destroyed my life and recently saved my life? And here's the letter in, in in longer version. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I want to discuss two incidents in my life that happened 30 years apart where the same act I committed had radically different results. One that destroyed my life at the time and one that may have saved my life. My parents instilled in me from an early age the importance of gemilas chasodim, acts of kindness, and being kind to strangers. If an older person is carrying something heavy, you stop what you're doing and help them. If someone is walking into a building behind you, you hold the door open for them, etc. These lessons have been the backbone of my existence. I'm always looking for ways to help people and inspire other people to do the same and increase in acts of kindness. 30 years ago, I was in yeshiva in a smicha program. Smicha program is a program where you get ordination, rabbinic ordination. One day I held the door open for a woman and somebody saw and started a false rumor that something romantic was going on between me and this woman. There wasn't. She was a stranger. It was a man. If it was a man walking into the building behind me, I would have... Also hold the door open. That's who I am. The rumor spread around the neighborhood quickly. I would walk into shul and people would point at me and laugh. A few days later, I was called into the Rosh Hashiva's office, the head of the school, and he said, we have been hearing a lot of rumors about you, so we have to expel you from yeshiva. I said, but the rumors aren't true. He replied, if everyone is talking about it, there must be some truth to it. I was so upset. At the time, I wanted to become a rabbi just like the other boys in my class. I understand that people can be fallible and make mistakes, but Hashem is omniscient, 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 and knew I was not guilty of doing anything wrong. How would God allow such an injustice? As I was, exi- as I was exiting the Rosh Hashiva's office, I turned around and said, the Goyim, the non-Jews, say a lot of bad things about Orthodox Jews, and if everyone is talking about it, there must be some truth to it. And I slammed the door and walked out. 
I went straight to a barber shop and, and had and had my and, and said shave this beard off. Then I went home and my parents wouldn't let me in because I didn't have a beard. They kicked me out too and I became homeless and was nowhere, and with nowhere to go. Then came years of drug abuse and living life on the fringe of society. The incident of this false rumor ruined my life at the time and made me stop being religious and I became an anti-religious atheist, but the core of my personality never changed during my troubled years. I still always looked for ways to do kindness. I still always picked up hitchhikers and held doors open for people. I still always drove to hospitals with my guitar to cheer up people who weren't feeling well. But I didn't do it because the Torah said so. I did it because it's just the right thing to do. It took me many years to straighten my life out and rejoin society as a productive person. Fast, fast forward 30 years. I now live upstate near the city of Kingston, New York. This past week, we had a terrible ice storm. The weight of the ice combined with heavy wind caused trees and power lines to crash down everywhere, blocking roads. 90% of the entire Ulster County was without electricity for a few days until the utility company could make emergency repairs. I told my wife I could live a few days without lights in our house because we have candles, and I could live a few days without heat because we have blankets but I absolutely can't live without a hot coffee in the morning. So we drove, drove around and found a bakery that had a generator so they were able to stay open and have electric. I was so happy to be able to get a coffee, I put my arms in the air and I cheered. I told my wife to wait in the warm car and I'll be right out with coffee for me and tea for her. As I was about to exit the door of the bakery, carrying two hot drinks, I noticed someone else a few steps behind me heading to the exit, so I stopped and waited so I could hold the door open for them. Right when I stopped, a huge six-foot-wide chunk of ice slid off the awning and crashed down on the sidewalk right outside the door. If I didn't stop for three seconds to hold the door for a stranger, the block of ice would have fallen on my head and could have seriously injured me. It's not so often that we see instant karma. It was a great feeling. I'm glad I wasn't injured, but it made me think, why this time did I see a good outcome from holding a door open for a stranger, but 30 years ago, the same act, destroyed my life at the time. I feel like I've come full, full circle. I know God is definitely sending me a message, but, I have, but I'm having difficulty interpreting exactly what the message is, so therefore I'm writing to you to help me figure it out. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Well, I'm very saddened by the story, this first half, of course, and what it led to I wonder, to be very honest, what other factors caused you to become so angry? Was it just that? Was there other things going on to the point that you shaved off your beard and your parents rejected you? But I'm not here to judge. I'm not here to uh, be nosy and pry in areas that you didn't share with me. But regarding your actual question, I will say, yeah, the lesson is very clear to me. It means that maybe it's time to get rid of that anger and realize that you did a good thing back then. The fact that it was misunderstood, it was misunderstood. And maybe that saved your life. Because had you, let's say, for instance, said, you know what, I'm not coping doors for anyone anymore because look what happened to me. Look what could have happened here. So the fact that you retained your kindness and that good behavior and that good act to me is a godly thing. You call yourself an atheist. I don't know where you are today, but this is the biggest God act possible. Now, why you had to go through that 30 years ago, I have no clue. But you had to go through it. You learned what you had to learn. I hope you became a greater person. But it's very clear how this all connects. And ultimately, 
this should only teach you and all of us, which is why I wanted to read this, lessons in our lives of how much kindness we have to show. And even sometimes our kindness is not always appreciated, and sometimes even worse, that we should never stop being kind because that itself is exactly what God wants, and that itself breaks open all types of boundaries. So I'm glad to hear how the story has ultimately evolved. I'd love to hear the end of the story, where you are today on a Jewish level. But I think it's time, if you still are angry, to relieve yourself of the anger and use what you've learned to help others. Because unfortunately, yes, people going to yeshiva and growing up, growing up in religious environments, in all environments, sometimes see hypocrisy, sometimes see being misunderstood. And we need, God knows how much we need, that we need to infuse our yeshiva system, we need to infuse all our systems with a deeper compassion and heart and soul. And in this case, and I'm assuming what you're saying is correct, that you were completely vilified and rejected for something you never did, look what can happen to a person by just making that type of mistake. So it's a lesson for all of us in that as well. And I thank you for writing to me, and hopefully my words are, are helpful to you. Okay. So now we'll let's conclude with the Chassidus question for the week, which is really a follow-up to last week. How can we compare blessed as Mordechai to cursed as Haman? More detail. One of the teachings of Purim is to keep drinking until we don't know the difference between blessed as Mordechai and cursed as Haman. If Mordechai represents good and Haman represents evil, why would we have a goal of not knowing the difference between good and evil. The most basic thing the Torah teaches us is, how, is that we do have to know the difference between good and evil. So we can do the mitzvahs and stay away from the averis. So what's the deeper meaning of Adelayada? So I discussed last week, and I'll, I'll embellish and elaborate a bit more now, following. Obviously the Torah is not coming to tell us to the point that you don't know the difference between good and evil. That's not exactly what Purim is coming to teach us. Adela Yoda, if you think of the words, means to the point that you go beyond Yoda, beyond the rational, not beneath the rational. If a person doesn't know the difference between good and evil, and they do evil just as they do good, God forbid, that's, that's irrational, or that's lower than rational. Layoda means you go beyond the rational structures of light and dark and good and evil, meaning not that you don't know that evil is evil and good is good, but you see that even in evil you can find that you can transform it. Look at the story of Purim. It was a tremendously evil decree, ge total genocide of all the men, women, and children of the Jewish people. Simple, put, simple as that. Total genocide. Couldn't be more evil than that. So people could wring their hands and just say, hey, what are we going to do? And yet Mordechai and Esther and the Jewish people did what they could do because they knew there's salvation, there's always hope, and that God is watching and when you do your part, you can not just eliminate the evil, but transform it. And that's the no difference between good and evil, that even evil could also be transformed to good. That's the key emphasis. And to do that, you have to go beyond the rational structures. We spoke earlier about number eight, and that's the connection. Number eight is transcendence, going beyond the structure of seven. The structures of existence, you see good, you see evil. The beyond structures also sees tshuva, that you can do tshuva. If someone does something wrong, they can repair. The only way to really deal with so many of the challenges of life today, including the letter I just wrote, read before about how a person was, his life was completely changed due to an accusation, due to a rumor that had no basis, and how many other people are affected, 
The only way to deal with that type of thing is not to push it under the carpet, not to ignore it, not to minimize it, but to look at it, to look at it in its face, right in its eyes, and say, what can we do when we see a child that's suffering? We see even a person who's made a mistake. What do we do? Do we just give up on them? No. We learn from Purim, Adelayada, Ben Arur Homa and Baruch Mordechai. Ben Baruch Mordechai and Arur Homa. That even something that's an Arur Homa can also be transformed. To do that, you have to go out of the structure. That's why you see people, with the expression they say, to err is human, to forgive is divine. Very often someone makes a mistake, deliberate, not deliberate, especially if they hurt you. Many of us close down. No, I do not forgive. I do, I'm not accept remorse. And there's no more hope. So that's staying in your structure. Purim comes to teach us, go beyond the structure. Like Yom Kippurim. Purim, Yom Kippurim is Kimait Purim. What's Yom Kippur? The birth of hope that even though the Jewish people built a terrible thing, a golden calf, it couldn't be more evil than that. Literally, idolatry, betraying God. And yet Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses would not take no for an answer. He wanted forgiveness and ultimately 80 days later prevailed the holiest day of the year, the birth of hope. The birth of a new door being opened. And that door goes beyond the structure. So we in our lives also have to look at things that way. That no matter what is going on, there are questions that I've received and will receive and have received in the past and spoken about. Parents who say, my children, I have a child that we don't speak to that child. The child has completely been estranged from us. And sometimes it's the parents who are the, the blame, sometimes the child. I don't like to play the blame game, so let's not talk about blame. But the key thing always, you have to open up a new door. You have to be able to say that there's something more going on. That never just see, just because something is utter haman, that seems like a curse in my life. Don't say, okay, you know what, I can't deal with it. It's my pride has been hurt. My choices have been hurt. I can't stand seeing it. I always tell parents who tell me, I have a child that's not religious. And, I, and they live under my house, under my roof. So I say, maybe this is a challenge to you. God is saying, get out of your comfort zone. Your child is going on their journey. But you have to maybe, maybe you've been, it's, you're stuck in your way. Now that doesn't mean, I wish the child would give you nachas. But maybe it forces you to get out of your rigidity and structure of things. That's what Purim teaches us. So its lesson is a tremendous lesson in hope, in resilience, in growth in everything that human beings need, because we are not perfect human beings. So Purim introduces that concept, similar to Yom Kippur, but Purim does it through food and drink, through the celebration of Purim. So with, with that, let's conclude this episode 395, My Life Sit is Supplied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. I thank you again for all your prayers and for your good wishes. We shall continue this journey. in Mitz Hashem, God bless, at Mismar Gula Legula, through the Yafutsa Maynesecha Chutza of chassidus applied in all forms of chassidus being brought and applied to life anywhere, to the farthest outskirts of chutzah, may it bring osimah damalka mashicha even before Pesach. Like the Rafidic Rebbe says, l'shona bobi Yerushalayim, when we say next year in Jerusalem, means Mashiach should come right now. May automatically will next year be in Jerusalem. May it be now, and thank you very much. Everyone have a very good week, and a continued simcha, remember, as long as it's other, marbim besimcha, we continue to grow in joy, even after Purim, Mylan Bukadesh, and that will only be a springboard to the joy that leads us into the next month, Chedesh Ha'Geula, the month of Nisan, and marching into Simcha Selim Al Reisham of Geula Hamitiz Vashleimah.
Thank you. This program is brought to you by My Life, Hasidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at hasidusapplied.com slash donate.